0: Welcome to this two-part episode of Michael Easley in Context. They weren't looking for exchanging gifts for uh, decorating homes, for sending packages and cards for big festive meals. They were looking for someone to solve their problem, someone to solve the sin condition. And now your host... Dr. Michael Easley. When we come to this time of the year, uh, all the chock full anticipations that children have toward Christmas and expectations for what this Christmas experience will be like, uh, these things as children, uh, we experience them as kids, they become family traditions. Uh, Before we know it, the way we grew up as a child, the things we expect and anticipate about Christmas are somehow integrated into our adult life and they become a tradition that we have to have. Uh, some of us have certain expectations. I'd like you to tell me, some of yours. It would not be Christmas without what? Fill in a blank. It would not be Christmas without... Turkey. Well, without a turkey. All right. It would not be Christmas without... Family. Chocolate, someone said? Chocolate, family. All right, now we're getting spiritual. Okay. It would not be Christmas without... The flu. <laughs> well, there you have it. It would not be Christmas without? Santa. 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 All right. We'll leave that one where it is. Yeah, leave it right there. What else? Lefsa. 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 How many people it would not be Christmas without Lefsa? Three of you. All right. Uh, someone said oyster stuffing last hour. Any oyster stuffing fans? Another one. Okay. It would not be Christmas without Christmas carols. carols, Music, great. Jesus, I like that answer. A tree, got to have a tree. Live tree? How many live treeers? I've done before. How many fake treeers? Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. If, If we leave the ornaments on and just shrink wrap it each year, it'd be a lot easier. Just. It would not be Christmas without. No one said movies. What movie? Christmas Vacation. Christmas Vacation. Another spiritual <laughs> answer. Elf. elf. Got to have Elf. Yeah. Scrooge. Did someone say Scrooged? Die Hard. <laughs> wow. We got some work to do. <laughs> Christmas Story, watch The Bee Begun. It's a Wonderful Life. How many? It's a wonderful. You gotta watch It's a Wonderful Life. How many of you? How about White Christmas? You gotta watch it's a How about Miracle on 34th Street? You actually like that movie still, not not the remake, but the original one. It's a very politically incorrect movie. We watched it a while back. That it's like really politically incorrect today. If you watch it, it's kind of weird. Um, what else? What are the movies? The In Laws, Christmas Carol. Polar Express. Okay. Home alone. What? Home alone. Home alone. There you go. That's a real edifying movie at Christmas, yeah. <laughs> um, before Christmas trees and movies, before Saint Nick, before Christmas cards, before all the traditions of commercialism that have uh, made the end of the year the uh, most important part of retail sales. If we were to go back before these things came into our history, what did people look forward to? There was no Christmas tree, there was no Christmas season. If we were to go back to antiquity, to when the Jewish or the pious believer was looking forward to something, they were expecting Messiah. They weren't looking for exchanging gifts for uh, decorating homes for sending packages and cards for big festive meals they were looking for someone to solve their problem someone to solve the sin condition israel's expectation was a messiah who would come and save them from their situation And it begins all the way back at the garden. For a few minutes, minutes, I would like to look with you at some messianic expectations. What the Bible tells us about what we're to look forward to. Not to disparage or demean the Christmas traditions that we enjoy and have fun with. But could we change our thinking just a little bit and recalibrate the way we look at this season? Not just even at the birth of Christ, but what it means that Messiah was going to come. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to open to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I want to think about some messianic expectations. In chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Genesis, God has created everything. All living creatures. He created an environment for them to live in. And the crescendo of His creation was man. The image of God. He's made in His image. The one who bears His image. And He makes man and woman as His image bearers. In chapter 3, of course, we read of the fall. And in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, we read of the first messianic expectation recorded in the Bible. Get the picture, remember the context, everything was provided for Adam and the woman, there was one prohibition, do not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that is in the middle of the garden. Anything else you can eat, do anything you want, just one thing don't do. And of course the temptation will be too great and they will succumb. Genesis 3, after the fall, God curses the serpent. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Uh, Tied to the serpent's uh, curse is the first promise of Messiah. So when God is now speaking after the fall, he curses the serpent for what it's done, and he also talks about the coming of Messiah. To put it another way, the first promise of Messiah was the destruction of the serpent and the deliverance for salvation. He'll destroy the serpent and he'll deliver man to salvation. The first prophecy is that Messiah will come and defeat Satan and deliver man. Now, there are many messianic motifs in these two verses that I have read. And in the larger chapter of verse 3, just to think of some of them, Uh, the man will toil and sweat. He will work out food of of bread in agony with thorns and thistles. Uh, There will be a curse surrounding it. The dust of death he will lie. He will struggle in this experience. All those words, every one of them are used to describe the Christ. That he will sweat drops of blood. He will be in great agony in Gethsemane. That he will wear a crown of thorns on his head. That he will be cursed and hung on a tree. And that he will be in the dust of death. And the imagery in the very first book of our Bible, in the third chapter, the way we enumerate it, right then when he curses Satan, he promises a deliverer. So from the first moment sin enters the equation, man is promised a deliverer. As Lloyd often loves to say, there was no plan B. There is only plan A from eternity past, and we see it in Genesis chapter 3. And the consequences, although devastating, are cushioned with a little bit of hope. They are going to leave what was life and now live in death. They're going to leave leave what was pleasure and now eke out a life of pain. They're going to leave abundance. Eat anything you want to scratch out hard bread from the dirt. They're gonna leave perfect fellowship for broken fellowship and conflict. I argue and believe Adam and Eve were the two most brilliant people that ever walked the planet. They had been made in the image of God, they had perfect fellowship with God, they were without sin for some period of time. They did not crawl up out of the primordial soup, they didn't drag their knuckles and become a living being, they were made in the image of God. And they understood this fall better than I think we even comprehend it. The pain of the consequences of this fall are cushioned, are softened by the promise of a deliverer. And I think they understood it even in the curses as we read them. Now Adam will later change his wife in chapter 3 verse 20 and chapter 4 verse 1 and he will call her Eve. Prior to that, it's been man and woman. Politically incorrect, that's what the Bible talks about. Ish being the man, Ish-ah being from the man. They're two. It's not issue of uh, superiority of sexuality. It's an issue of two people or one. They're made in the image of God. He will change her name to Eve as the mother of life or the living one or the mother who gives life. It can be variously translated. And she will bear a boy named Cain in Genesis 4 verse 1. Now, Cain in English is a word play that we miss. Uh, when we translate the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into English, we lose a lot. And uh, it's, it's sort of like you can't translate a rhyme from one language into another. It just fails. And some of the, let's call it a rhyme, the way the words sound and structure in Hebrew, you can't quite bridge them over. But to, simp- to put it very simply, the word gotten a man child and Cain are about the same word. What she's saying is, I've gotten this man-child, and I'll name him Cain. The Net Bible rendered it this way. She gave birth to Cain, and giving birth is the same word almost as Cain. She gave birth to Cain, and then she said, I have created a man just as the Lord. That's a pretty good paraphrase. I've created a man just like God created Adam. What's she saying? Life. Life. And so the wordplay of Cain is, this is a creation of something living in the image of God. Not like what it was before, but it's a glimmer of hope. And if arguably they are the two most brilliant people on the planet, they understood that birth meaning hope. I have gotten a man-child. Imagine the horror when years later the older Cain will kill his brother Abel. And they will know that this was because of their sin. They will know because they reached in the garden and tried to be like God, knowing good and evil. They will know the consequences of being out of fellowship. They will know the consequences of living in life, now living in death. They will know the consequences of plenty to having little and scratching out a life. They will know that that boy's death was because of their sin. And God will once again give them hope of life when Seth is born. And on the story continues. The enmity between Satan will continue. If you came from a Catholic background or have pay attention to such things, you might have seen a statue. Notre Dame has got a statue of, um, of the Madonna, of Mary, crushing a serpent under her foot, and it's an imagery taken from this passage: "He will bite you on the heel, but you will crush him on the head." It refers to the Messiah crushing the serpent on the head. How do we escape Satan's grip? How do we escape a sin nature we inherited from our parents? How do we escape the effects that our sins have on other people? How horrific a parent to think that my child murdering one of my other children was because of the consequences of my sin. How do we escape our depravity? God's gracious provision. Painful consequences, but there's a promise of a future deliverer. Unfortunately, it doesn't get better, it only gets worse. By Genesis 11, man has come together and he's trying to make a name for himself. He's going to build a ziggurat to God and make a name for himself. And there's great mockery in the Bible. God looked down to see what they were doing. Oh, those ants, they're building a little ant hill, isn't that cute? And God visits his people and confuses their language. And in the so called Table of Nations in Genesis 10 and 11, the people groups are born. We get very few words from Hebrew into English. One of them is Babel. That comes from Babel in Genesis 10 and 11 because they spoke Babel. And that word's taken letter for letter and brought into the English language. It's a great descriptive word when we can't understand something. It sounds like babbling. And so the, my thesis is not only was the language a differentiation, I believe races began there. If God could change a vocalization, a language skill, and a mindset, He could certainly create ethnicities to separate these people who had become one trying to build this temple to make a name for themselves to God. And the table of nations begins, and from there war begins. It'll be one brother against a younger brother, and then it will become people groups that will fight against and kill each other because one man, through one man sin, entered the world. And they will kill and take advantage of and injustices will breed, and it will continue. The first prophecy was that Messiah will come and defeat the tempter. He will defeat Satan, and he will deliver the promise of a son who will provide salvation to man. Another expectation from Messiah is not only that he will come and defeat Satan and provide a way for man, but he will come for all men. He will make provision for all. Turn into your Bible to Genesis 12. Genesis 12, 1 to 3 are, are verses you should know well. You should have them marked up and studied well in your Bible. The so-called Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. The expectation of Messiah who will come for all, to make provision for every sinner. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Just as through one seed sin entered the world, now through one he makes a promise that one's going to come from him. Now the Abrahamic covenant is, we've talked about this many times, is a unilateral covenant, meaning God is going to do this. We might put in parentheses, regardless of Abraham's participation. He's chosen Abram to be a blessing to the world We've just fractured the world becoming one in Genesis 10 and 11 because of their idea of making a name for themselves rather than making make a name for God. So God dispersed them and now the wars have begun, the ethnicities have begun. And so he comes to Abram and says, from Ur of the Chaldees, you're going to be the father of a nation. And from you, the Messiah will come. Notice in that passage, he will make him a great nation, but he will be a blessing to the earth. To all people groups, not just the Jew. Genesis thirteen fifteen: For all the land which you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. Genesis twenty two eighteen: In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you obeyed my voice. Not just Jews; all the ethnos, we'd say, all the different goyim of the world will be blessed because of you. Paul will exegete this in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. He does not say to his seeds, referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, Paul writes, that is Christ. Paul, the Jew's Jew understood that the Abrahamic covenant was not merely for the Jew was for all and he understood that that seed that would come through Abram, Abraham, would be the Christ, the provision who would come to defeat Satan and offer deliverance for man. Again we know the stories too well perhaps they become a little bit passe to us. Oh I know that story, I've heard it. But we know the life of Abram is not a perfect life by any comparison. He fails many times. Isaac is born after Ishmael. Ishmael's the unwanted son, the illegitimate son, we might say. He will not be the one God blesses. He will bless Isaac. And Isaac comes along and after some point in his late teens, God says, I want you to kill him. He's had this son well past childbearing years. This son has been the miracle child. He's been told he's going to be a father of countless descendants he's got one child, go kill him take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice to me on Mount Moriah and Abraham obeys and he straps the wood on his boys back and off to Moriah they go what kind of father would do this and Isaac asks, there's the wood here's the fire, where's the sacrifice and Abraham's double entendre answer. The Lord will provide. You're the sacrifice, Isaac. You didn't tell him. You're the sacrifice. They get to the top of Mount Moriah, which, by the way, is where the temple complex is built today, not far from where the Dome of the Rock sits. That's the very place Isaac laid his son on a stack of wood. And as he's about to draw the knife across his neck and bleed him, some commentator has observed, there's no account in the scripture of a struggle A young man could certainly have overpowered an older father, and somehow the father ties his own boy to a pile of wood on top of a rock, and is about to bleed him. And God stops it. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice to me. And there in the bulrushes, there in in the brush is a ram the Lord provided. What a memorable experience that must have been for Isaac. Probably the happiest second of his life, crawling off that pile of wood. I get to live, that ram gets to die. And there will be John the Baptist in John chapter 1 who will say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, happier those who are called. Jesus becomes that Lamb. Jesus is the father's son, his only son, his only begotten son whom he loves. This one does not escape the crucifixion. This one is killed, this one is bled, this one dies. And on the messianic expectations continue. We see the Messiah and the father. The second prophecy is that Messiah will come into the world to offer a way of salvation to all. Not just to the Jew, but to all. Thank you for listening to Michael Easley in Context. Stay tuned for part two of this special episode of Michael Easley in Context.